Hey folks, and welcome to episode 175 of the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm assistant to Peter Lightheart, the president of Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode of the podcast, Peter Lightheart continues his discussion on economics and Jesus with Jerry Boyer. Jerry is a good friend of Theopolis and an economist who is the founder of Boyer Research. He's also previously written for Forbes magazine and is the founder of the Allegheny Institute for Public Policy. This conversation dives deep into the economics of Jesus and also discusses how economics played into the crucifixion of Christ. Before we get into the episode, though, we wanted to remind you about our newsletter, In Medias Race. In Medias Race is a weekly digest of all things Theopolis, from articles to podcasts and video series. We recently started a video series on YouTube on how to read the Bible, and if you are on our newsletter list, you can receive each video a week early. So if you'd like to sign up, you can head to the link down there in the show notes for you, or you can go to our website, theopolisinstitute.com. With that, we hope that you enjoy and are as fascinated with this discussion as we are. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Welcome to this special edition of the Theopolis Podcast. This is Peter Lighthart, and I'm here again with Brian Motes, uh, with our Executive Director, John Crawford. And we also have on the line uh, Jerry Boyer. Uh, We had Jerry Boyer in a previous episode talking about his work on uh, the economics of the Gospels and uh, the economic teaching of Jesus. Uh, Jerry is a longtime reader and student of the work of James Jordan and a follower of Biblical Horizons, an uh, encourager and supporter of uh, Theopolis. It, he runs his own uh, economic and finance research company, uh, The Boyer Research, writes for Forbes.com and other online uh, and print periodicals, uh, and he's a deacon who serves in the Episcopal Church. So welcome back, Jerry. Great to have you back again. Great to be back. I should probably make one minor correction. I don't want to be guilty of um, of a resume um, uh, um, exaggeration. I don't write for Forbes any longer. Ah. My services were no longer required. I see. As of earlier this year. Um, okay. But I'm grateful. The la- the very last article I did was um, Easter Sunday about the resurrection. So um, I, I I thought I was going to get fired from Forbes for a few years. Um, and I asked God to make sure I got fired for the right reason. Um, that's what I asked of him. And I think he gave me that, he answered that prayer. So uh, when you were here last, Jerry, we were talking about the uh, economic situation of Galilee, where you were suggesting that the uh, area where Jesus grew up in was not, as some have argued, uh, an area of uh, peasant oppression uh, large agribusinesses that were squeezing people off the land, but rather was a kind of a booming uh, regional economy with a couple of uh, towns that were being that were uh, centers of rebuilding or new building centers of commerce. It was an intersection for trading routes, and so then uh, Jesus is is uh, growing up in that kind of setting, and that in part gives us an idea of where Jesus gets some of his uh, economic insight when he tells tells parables. Um, and just at the end of the last episode, you were talking about how there's a there's a transition in Jesus' teaching as he moves from Galilee and starts making his way to Jerusalem. And uh, while in Galilee, he doesn't confront the issue of uh, wealth. Uh, he doesn't denounce the rich as he does as he moves to Jerusalem. So there's there's a geographic transition in his teaching. 
And it has to do with Jesus getting closer and closer to the center of Israel and to the uh, what you call the company town of Jerusalem with uh, the temple as the primary uh, economic center as well as the liturgical center. One of the things that that context helps us to do is to make some sense of the parables that Jesus uh, tells. And we were chatting before we started the recording that uh, about the parable of the ungrateful steward that uh, you, you wanted to, you thought that that would be a good example of something that provides uh, your your studies have provided some fresh insight into that the significance of that parable. Yeah, um, just to say something in general about the parables, um, and um, I got this insight from uh, David Finnessy in his uh, book uh, Christian Origins in the Ancient Economy. Um, and there's a lot of insights in the larger two-volume um, set from Fortress Books, which I think was 2016-2017, with just an enormous amount of detail about the uh, Gal- the um, Galilean digs and what's going on in biblical archaeology there. But uh, Finnessy makes this really important point, which is, if Jesus were leading a peasant revolt, why are the peasants often the bad guys in his parables? And the investor is generally the good guy. These aren't just financial parables in the sense of they're sophisticated. They are often from the viewpoint of the owner. This, if these are short stories designed to foment revolution, then they're written in very odd ways. Um, if they're, if the, the, well, there is a kind of a revolution going on, but it's not a Marxist revolution. Um, so this, this is, it doesn't take the, these parables don't take the peasants' point of view. Um, you know, the peasants are the ones, uh, you know, or the stewards or slaves or whatever, are the ones who rise up and kill the son, you know, in the parable of the um, mm-hmm. wicked husband, husband, for example, um, the owner in the parable of the talents, uh, the parable of the unrighteous steward, um, capital tends to be associated with the good guy. And I think it's because the basic analogy that Jesus is making over and over again is that God, Yahweh, is the owner of Israel, of the Holy Land, of indeed of the whole world, but particularly the special place, the Holy Land, the Garden, the Gon Elohim, um, and that the religious and political leaders of Israel are the stewards of it, and they are ungrateful and unfaithful stewards. Um, and so one of the interesting things, another interesting thing about the parables is that the numbers generally ring true. That when we're talking about the, the number of talents that someone have an investor or the number of, um, or the quantity of barley or olive oil that are forgiven, those are real true to life numbers. These are, these would work as business case studies. They were realistic. Um, except this parable of the ungrateful steward, excuse me, um, uh, ungrateful servant, sorry, this parable of the ungrateful servant. Um, where commentators point out that these numbers must be exaggerated because 10,000 talents is a huge number. Um, and Jesus would never have seen that in the marketplace. So what's going on? So I was curious about that. So I, um, I looked at the pericope, right? And it comes right after Jesus saying that you should forgive 70 times seven. And I think that listeners to a Theopolis podcast would You'd not be surprised at the idea that 70 times 7 is not just um, Jesus' idiom for lots and lots, but that numbers are important, and the 7 times 70, um, 70 weeks of 7 was the prophecy made by Daniel, uh, 490 years to complete the captivity. 
so that this is exile language and would certainly have been taken as exile language by the people hearing them because the seven times 70 was in the air at the time. All the various messianic sects were into that because they knew that they were coming up to the end of that 490 year period. It was one of the reasons why you had so many false messiahs. So that puts us in a national exile type context. And then immediately after that, to illustrate that sto- that um, statement, that aphorism, Jesus tells the parable of somebody, a servant who is forgiven a lot by the owner, by the king, Yahweh, but doesn't forgive himself. So let's just, con- you know, if you can, if you continue with this exile theme, we know that Israel is exiled because they did not practice the Shemitah and Jubilee laws. Um, we're told that in Chronicles which you're writing a commentary on now at the end of Chronicle. Why Why were they put out of the land? Because the land needed its rest. They had not followed the, that sabbatical system. So we know that debt is tied to exile to begin with in God's eyes. Um, and then we have a debt story in which someone is forgiven by God but does not forgive those under him, um, and which the religious elites did not. There were a complicated set of workarounds created by Hillel and others the Prosbul and other things. Uh, Jesus the Temple by Nick Perrin gets into a lot of this detail. You can get a lot of detail by going back to Alfred Edersheim, uh, his book, The Temple, that the religious scribes who were part of the problem, and they knew they were part of the problem because when Jesus got mad at religious leaders, the scribes said, what about us? And Jesus says, yes, you too, um, had <laughs> created ways to violate the Torah. And they centered on the temple that basically if I owe you money, um, and we are coming up to the Shemitah law, you, Peter, could take that receivable, that, um, that note, and sell it to the temple. And Hillel said the temple is not bound by the Shemitah law. So you could, what in business they would call factor your receivables, you could take that note and sell it to the temple at a price that would include the value of the future payments. And now the temple is the collector, the goon. Um, in violation of the Torah, but through a religious workaround, able to do that and keep the debt going forever and ever. So, or at least until the debt's paid off, but because people had trouble keeping up with the vig, with the interest, it could go on forever and ever. So I think if you put the parable of the uh, ungrateful servant in that context, it makes just a whole lot of sense. And it makes sense of that little mystery. Why such a large number, 10,000 talents are forgiven? Well, because this is a macroeconomic observation. The nation had not forgiven national level debts. And I actually did a little mathematical workout. I looked at sort of the standard, uh, I looked at how much Herod Agrippa was getting from the, from taxes, you know, divided by the tax rate, probable tax rate, um, to get national output. And it comes out to six years output for Judea and environs, six years national economic output. So these are macroeconomic numbers because a macro, uh, not because it's exaggerated because Jesus didn't know the right numbers, but because this is a macroeconomic observation about the failure, uh, to deal with the debt problem. Um, and Israel did not listen to Jesus's advice, by the way. I'll skip to the end. And in 66 AD, there was a debt revolt, um, which the, the, the trigger for the destruction of Jerusalem uh, was a debt revolt four years before, which set the city into chaos. Josephus records this. Um, the uh, the Sicarii, the dagger men, killed the, uh, the the high priest and his family, and then burned down the public records building. And Josephus said they did that because they wanted to curry favor with all the debtors. 
Um, so, you know, Jesus's advice is very practical. You need to forgive debts. Debts can't go on forever. You shouldn't violate the Torah. Um, they did violate the Torah. That's what the scribes and Pharisees were, were complicit in. Um, and, uh, so just, I, this is an observation you made just as the first temple was destroyed because of a failure to deal with the macroeconomic problem of debt. So was the second, uh, in, in a very material way, whatever, whatever God's intents are, we know historically that you had a debt boom bust. The temple construction stopped in 64 AD, beginning the bust cycle of the economic boom. If, you know, tens of thousands of people are laid off, but they still have the debt and you have a debt revolt, which ends up um, putting into a play um, um, a, a cause and effect chain, which leads to the destruction of, of, of Jerusalem and then later of Israel under the Bar Kokhba revolt. So that parable is, um, you could you could take it as an exhortation to personal forgiveness that we we forgive as we pray we forgive our debtors um but uh you're saying that the parable itself is constructed to so that the servant represents uh the leaders of israel who have stewardship over the the wealth that the lord has given yes and they don't forgive it instead they hoard it (laughs) um now that, that i read that parable and i definitely think about who i haven't forgiven um, sure. but I, I want to read this. I, um, I think the evangelical conversation starts with heart and personal relationship, but I think we have to skim over a lot of text, um, to miss that there's a historical context. So I think first you read these parables and these discourses in their historical context. What would the people there have heard? Um, you know, what, what little details of the text tell us about Jesus' intent? And then let's build a hermeneutical bridge to our own lives. Now, the hermeneutical bridge also might be we need to deal with national debt problems, right? That's, um, but the hermeneutical bridge that's, you know, operational for most of us is we need to forgive. Um, a God who would, who says you should forgive macroeconomic levels of debt certainly thinks that we should forgive, um, disagreements about, um, you know, whether to leave the toilet seat lid up or down, you know, or all the little things in life, um, you know, that we need to forgive one another for. Um, so I wouldn't take away from that interpretation. I think that's right. an, I, I, you know, I would just, I wouldn't call it an interpretation. I would call it an application. So Jesus is uh, moving toward Jerusalem. He's, he's uh, set his face toward Jerusalem coming from Galilee. And, uh, there are a number of episodes where wealth become, becomes a uh, uh, a central central issue in Jesus' interactions with people. Uh, he tells the rich rich young ruler that he has to sell everything and give it to the poor. Uh, he encounters Zacchaeus, for example. Um, there's the widow who's giving her might to the temple, and um, all of those are uh, along the way from Galilee to Jerusalem. So it's Jesus moving toward the center of. Israel's life, uh, he's confronting each of these. Uh, he's, he's confronting this issue more directly than he had when he was in Galilee. Those are some of the main episodes that you would that you've studied, and in, in your understanding of uh, the economics of first century Israel would uh, would shed light on what Jesus is getting at. Yeah, and so once you once you have that idea in your mind, you go back and you read these encounters carefully. Um, so he has a, a confrontation with a rich young ruler. We already talked about that in the first interview, an archon, a Sanhedrin member, probably, 
a, a man of the state, a, a man of the ruling class. And there's an interesting, you know, um, little conversation about the commandments. You, you know, you know what the commandments are, right? Um, you know, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not murder. I think I switched the order. Uh, thou shalt not um, uh, steal. Uh, thou shalt not defraud. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Thou shalt not covet. And the man says, I've kept these from my youth. And if you're reading that carefully, you notice that Jesus has inserted a command into the second table of the law. Thou shalt not defraud. Um, that's not part of the Ten Commandments. I mean, it's implicit and don't steal and don't bear false witness, but Jesus mm-hmm. separately says, thou shalt not defraud. Um, why does Jesus add that commandment? Um, well, I think it's pretty clear um, because the man was defrauding. Um, um, he was defrauding. This was very common for members of the ruling class in the Sanhedrin to do. Um, and it was so common that St. James later, writing from Jerusalem, makes the same observation about the ruling class of his time, which is, I don't know, what's the Theopolis line on James, 10 or 15 years later? Or what's, uh, when do you yeah. see James? Yeah. Pretty soon after the, after Stephen's death. Okay. Uh, so James writing from Jerusalem and see, once we have this, th- this thesis in mind, then we, I think we let it flow over into James. He says, do not rich men defraud you. Do they not apostaromanos you and drag you before the judgment seats? Um, so it's endemic. If you read the historical accounts of the time that they were involved with this kind of defrauding and, and James, you know, invokes that practice against the ruling class of his time. So, I mean, otherwise, what explanation do we have? Why does, did Jesus forget his Ten Commandments memory verses and accidentally drop a new commandment into the second table of the law? I think the more reasonable explanation is he's drawing attention to defrauding because defrauding is what's going on. That's why that man is told to give it, to give it to the poor because it's taken from the poor. But we don't have any confrontation with Joseph of Arimathea, uh, the tin merchant. And we don't have any confrontation with bankers up in Sepphoris that are recorded in the Gospels. Um, so I think it's the, I think the fraud is relevant, not just a nice little piece of, of personal detail. Um, I think it is at, at the core of why this man, this man's wealth is denounced. So this would be uh, uh, connected with uh, analogous to what Jesus uh, tells Zacchaeus to do. Yeah, I told, I, I, right. And, and Zacchaeus says, if I have defrauded, um, different Greek words, sukafonteo, um, my friend Joseph Castleberry from um, Northwest University has an interesting take on this. A sucofanteo is somebody who sh- literally shake is a shakedown artist, shakes the trees to have the fruit come down. So Jesus is in some sense shaking down the shakedown artist when he brings him down from the sycamore tree. Um, hmm. But sucofanteo is a uh, uh, def- uh, lectionary definition, le- lectionary um, lexicon de- definition, accuse falsely, oppress, blackmail. Um, so only after Zacchaeus repents of that, does Jesus say salvation came to your house. Interesting parallel, John the Baptist, when he is instructing tax collectors and soldiers what not to do, he says, do not sucofanteo, uh, don't shake people down. Um, so, um, uh, so again, there's a parallel. This is ruling class stuff, tax collectors and the soldiers who are their enforcers. Jesus says, only collect the taxes you should, 
And it's interesting. He doesn't turn to the soldiers. The soldiers ask him because the soldiers know they're the enforcers. The soldiers say, "What about us?" And he says, "Don't don't participate in sucofantio. Don't don't participate in this extremely common practice of using your state power to shake people down." Yeah. And so, um, in, in in both cases, in both the case of the rich young ruler and Zacchaeus, uh, you're saying different uh, different terms, but a similar kind of practice where. What Jesus is requiring is uh, restitution for what they've defrauded. Yes, both cases are cases of men of the state using political um, connections. There's there are subtle differences between them. One is made legal via the scribes and Pharisees, essentially creating these workarounds to the Torah tricks, lawyers' tricks. The other is illegal, but extremely commonly practiced, the shakedown. Mm-hmm. So uh, how, would you, how would you think through some of the more general teaching that Jesus gives? I'm thinking particularly of uh, what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, um, lay up treasures in heaven, don't lay up treasures on earth where moth and rust corrupt, thieves break in and steal, seek first the kingdom and all these things will be added to you. Um, uh, how, how do you how do you fit that into the uh, how you're seeing the overall thrust of the Gospels? Well, let's. Um, um, that's a good question, and well, let's be clear about the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain and the details, because you see this geographical variation between them. The Sermon mm-hmm. on the Mount seems to be to a general national audience. Um. Uh, it includes people from Jerusalem and Judea, but the, the text tells us Galilee and the Decapolis and from beyond the Jordan. And there are some pretty good hints, news about him spread throughout all Syria, that it was up, tended to be more up north, more, more in the Galilean area. We don't know exactly where, but it comes, it doesn't come after traveling in Judea, right? It comes after there are hints that it's up, up more north. Uh, that's the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Plain is given to an audience is Jerusalem and Judea and Tyre and Sidon, which would have been very likely business associates from Tyre and Sidon visiting Jerusalem, uh, because Tyre was the mint for Jerusalem. The crooked money changer system was run on crooked money, but it was minted by Tyre, so the Tyronians were in on it. And I can I can just see lights blinking off in your head as you're thinking about Ezekiel's text on Tyre and all the biblical material on Tyre, that it, it was basically, you know, kind of complicit in and profiting from a swindle of the temple tax. Um so the so there there are interesting variations between the Sermon on the Mount uh I mean they both have warnings up against wealth, and wealth is dangerous. I don't deny that at all. Uh, whether we, uh, entrepreneur's wealth can drag you to hell and a, and so, uh, the, the wealth of uh, a man of the state can drag him to hell too. Uh, we, uh, wealth is a terrible master, um, but it can be a blessed servant. But it, in terms of social benefit and ju- social justice, and yes, I'm going to say social justice d- d- despite that, that, um, that paper that's going around where people say Christians shouldn't say social justice. From a social justice standpoint, there's a real difference between someone who makes money by going to England and trading tin as opposed to somebody who makes money through Sucofanteo. Okay, so if you look at the Sermon on the Mount, um, it's blessed are the uh, um, poor. Um, I want to get this straight. Blessed are the poor in spirit, not blessed are the poor. 
right? So there's a little less in your face about poverty. Um, Sermon on the Mount says, ye are the salt of the earth. Sermon on the Plain, in the same place where you would have ye have, have the, are the salt of the earth, you have woe to you who are rich. Mm. You don't have a woe to you who are rich when he's talking to the audience up north. Um, mm. I mean, Jesus had, I, you know, you give speeches, I give speeches, we have stump speeches, and we vary them a little. You know, when mm. I'm in Pittsburgh, I talk about steel. When I'm in Seattle, I talk about technology. And um, so as he's traveling around, he's varying his speech. So the, you know, uh, Matthew's, Matthew's gospel doesn't have the renunciation, has a, you are the salt of the earth, but does not have the woe, the, the two woes to the rich. But when he's speaking to a Judean and Tyronean audience, he has a broad denunciation of wealth. Um, so that fits perfectly with the geographical pattern that I'm, that I'm mentioning. He has a, he has a different hometown speech than he has when he visits DC. When he goes to Washington, he talks differently than when he's in, you know, wherever, uh, when he's in the Midwest. Um, because there's different economies. Why wouldn't he speak differently about wealth where there's different wealth creation mechanisms or extraction mechanisms? Yeah, so that, that's what I was going to ask you, how you would uh, try to apply this to contemporary American economics. And that would, obviously, there'd be a geographic difference. That's one of the things you're trying to emphasize. How how would you think through this in terms of kind of global distributions of wealth? Well, I haven't until you just asked. <laughs> so, um, I'm I'm thinking that there, you know if you're saying that uh, Jesus is giving more severe warnings about wealth, confronting that issue more directly when he's in areas where there's there's more danger of an idolatry of wealth and being trapped by that than. The, the global distribution would mean that the, the, the wealthier countries are going to be more, it's going to be a greater danger for them than for, in, in different kinds of economies. Yeah, I'm, I'm not saying that he's confronting it necessarily because there's more danger of idolatry. I'm saying he's confronting okay. it because he's offended by it. Because mm-hmm. it's morally objectionable to make your living through extraction as opposed to creation of wealth. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think he's genuinely offended when he's in Jericho. You know, I looked into, at the data from archaeological digs in the cemetery of Jericho versus, say, up in Judea. A lot more, lot more dead children in the yeah. uh, cemeteries of, of Judea, excuse me, of uh, Galilee, than there are in Jericho. Um, which there's some reason to believe that the, the you know, the, the company business, the Jericho. I mean, it had some pr- cr- um, creative activity, but it was seems to have been priest town. A kind of a bedroom community for the Jerusalem priestly elite. Um, we're not, that's not settled, but there's evidence of that. Um, mm-hmm. so I think that Jesus talked about wealth differently, um, because he was genuinely offended by yeah. a ruling class which was extractive rather of the, the takers of wealth rather than makers. But yes, pastorally, they were in more danger of their souls and they were also more in, in more danger of their skin. The rich young ruler owned much property, he may. If the memory serves me correctly, landed property, exactly the kind of stuff that keeps you from leaving, you know, non-liquid property, the stuff that keeps you from leaving Jerusalem um, as the dangers of a Roman invasion are going up, tied mm. to the social system, tied to the mm. land, tied down. Um, mm. So um, I think that pastorally, it is tough for a wealthy man to enter the kingdom of God. I know that from wealthy friends. Mm-hmm. Um, multimillionaires find it more difficult to convert. 
By the way, it's enter the kingdom of God or enter the kingdom of heaven. It's not enter heaven. Jesus is not saying a converted person who is rich will have trouble getting into heaven. He's saying a rich person will have trouble converting. And I'm, that, I think that's pastorally true. And I think it's pastorally true um, that wealthy people I, I have idolatry of money. But, you know, so do poor people. I, had a, I have a friend yeah. uh, who's homeless, and I hired him to do some work. Uh, and he hired another homeless friend of his to work on the project. And as far as I can tell, my homeless friend, Sukofante, owed his friend, withheld his wages. Uh, he wanted me to pay through him. Um, and it sure looks like, you know, his uh, homeless PTSD vet didn't get paid properly. Um, uh, so poor people, I, I'm not sure that rich people are more greedy than poor people, honestly, but I think rich people are more tied to the social system. So if Jesus is saying all of this is coming down, um, you have to break out of this order. A landed aristocrat's going to have a whole lot more trouble than a poor person and even more than a trader or someone who has liquid, you know, financial capital. Hey, Jerry, this is John. <clears throat> hey, John. Um, I want to, if I can, uh, ask a question, and because this brings up a lot of questions, I think, in the minds of some of the folks that might be listening into this episode. Um, and w- when I was in college, I read a book by Ron Sider, Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger, uh, and I thought it was the best thing since sliced bread. I read it multiple times. I recommended it, and I found out that Jesus really was a socialist. Um, mm. And I was on my way to spending more time with Tony Campolo or Jim Wallace, and um, on this track, and it was a refute that stopped me uh, in my tracks. And uh, it was uh, a, a book, I think, entitled "Productive Christians in an Age of Guilt Manipulators." It was yep, David Chilton. And yeah. that's right. And from there, read my way into circles um, that were really foundational to the Theopolis of today. I would say, but I, I have to ask, you know, what was it that enthralled enthralled me so much to start with with Ron Sider? Uh, and, it, and it was the fact that faith and life, um, which had been separated, were brought together all of a sudden. So I had a Gnostic bent in my thinking. And when the two, the two met, but when they did, it was in the context of these religious right ideas. And Sider brought them together, and he did so with the scripture as the point of reference. Um, it was just an error. And so you mentioned at the beginning of the last episode that these two things are still separated. Um, and that they need to be biblically in- integrated, um, but we as Christians today have trouble doing that. We we just really have trouble um, integrating these two uh, from a biblical perspective. I'd like to think um, that we should let a Theopolitan reading of Scripture inform the integration, and surely that's what Theopolis is doing and the work that you're doing. Um, but it still brings up a question. If we have such a difficult time integrating these two at getting into Scripture like um, like you're doing on this episode, where do you point people um, to be able to integrate these things in a way that you're doing so today, um, knowing that they're, they may be at a standstill? Does that make sense? Yeah, there's a, 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 a several questions there. Um, uh, and I would say in defense of young John Crawford, um, if a young evangelical is not a Ron Sider fan when he's in youth group, he has no heart. But if he's still a, a Ronald Sider fan uh, when he's, uh, you know, out as an adult, he has no head, right? I mean, I think we all had those, you know, that those that youthful connection with kind of social justice stuff. 
Um, and I, I, I think that, um, so I, you know, I, I understand that. And I really think we actually get, need to get more in touch with that. I mean, if we can't preach James sermon, Oh, ye come ye rich men, weep and howl for the judgment that's come upon you. Then it seems to me that we're running away from the text rather than embracing it. But just be clear that the pat, that what emerges when you look at the details is not to give more power to the ruling class that James is denouncing. It's the distribution of power, uh, not the concentration of power. That socialism makes this stuff worse. Socialism redistributes upwards while it pretends to redistribute downwards. It talks re- downward redistribution while it practices, while Chevy Chase, Maryland, and Arlington, Virginia, and you know, the zip codes around Washington, D.C. become the wealthiest zip codes in America on the rhetoric of redistribution to the poor. Uh, so I, I think we, I, there's, I think there's something good in that youthful impulse. We just have to temper it with uh, the wisdom of how the world actually works. That anytime you create a nomenclatura, whether it's in the name of the poor or of the rich or of the smart or whatever, it will become a kleptocracy. And the Torah warned us about that. There's so many warnings in the Torah, specifically, you know, um, when, when, when in Deuteronomy, when Moses is choosing rulers, choose men who fear God and hate dishonest gain. Deuteronomy 17 tells the, tells us the king is not supposed to get rich. First Samuel 8 says that the king will give your wealth to his governors, to his retinue. It is of the very nature of political power to be tempted by, by Sukofanteo, um, and legal versions of it, by extra, an extractive society. So we should be outraged by that. We should stop defending it. And we should also stop writing off the text. I mean, I think the reason that Tony Campolo and now, who's the new one? Um, there's a younger one. I was on a panel with him. Shane Claiborne, they start this red letter group, you know, which is the words of Jesus. It's like, and we run from the words of Jesus frequently. Well, Jesus isn't really talking about money. He's talking about theological forgiveness. or He's talking about the heart. We spiritualize it to escape the text. Um, because we think, like young Ludwig von Mises, we think that in some sense the text feels socialist to us, and we know socialism's wrong, so we run from it. And I think we ought to embrace the text and make socialists explain why they are using text in which Jesus denounces men of the state to give the state more power. Um, the red letters are great. Um, they're the words of Jesus. But up until then, there are black letters that tell us that he was in Jericho or Jerusalem or and talking to a tax collector or a ruler. So we ought to put the red letters in context of the black letters that give us the occupation and the economic details that enable us to understand what he's denouncing. Um, but, uh, but I think, so what resource would I point people to? I mean, if you're already Theopolis readers, you already have a, the model in your head. Re- you can read with hermeneutical maximalism. Let the text say everything to you the text wants to say. Stop telling the text what not to say. Stop telling it what to say. Let the details come out. And now that you, as a Theopolitan, you already understand how much Jesus is speaking to the relevant issues of his time, um, that let him do that. You know, um, continue to read that way and see if it makes sense. I could be wrong about all this. Hermeneutically, my view is I hold to the view which is the best view for now. This interpretation that I've given explains a lot more details of the text than anything else I've seen. But if someone comes along with a, you know, a Popperian disconfirmation or a theory that explains more details of the text, I will, with sadness, let go of this um, hermeneutical approach. But so far, it's lining up perfectly. And every time someone challenges me, like, 
you know, Peter, you asked about the Sermon on the Mount. Someone asked me about that later. I thought, okay, maybe I'm wrong. I'm going to go read the Sermon on the Mount. And then I read the Sermon on the Plain, and I saw, wow, it's there too. He, he varies his message. So I would say, you know, pray for wisdom, keep your Theopolitan intuitions intact, and read the Gospels with this in mind, and test, test it. You know, see if it's right. And if you find something that disconfirms what I'm saying, pop an email over or send something on social media, because I don't want to say something that's untrue. Now, just uh, me insert before we uh, move on to another topic, um, what you said about James is very much what, what we want to... Uh, what we want to do with Theopolis, which is um, let the text speak for itself. And if the text uh, offends American sensibilities, um, it, that's, I mean, that's pervasive in the prophets. Um, I, think, I think what you're doing, what you're helpfully doing is showing us, um, giving us a context in the Gospels that makes sense of uh, what Jesus is saying and what particular issues he's confronting. But I think it's important to uh, make the point that you're not trying to neutralize the severe things that Jesus says to the wealthy, uh, to the oppressive wealthy of Jerusalem in particular, and uh, yeah. you're not you're not trying to you're not trying to massage that or escape the the, the uh, force of those sayings at all. No, and what I find is that our crowd, our broader, say, like let's say, people influenced by reform thought and free market thought, have to some degree, I think, muted the text. Um, and, um, and, and that's a mistake. And I'll give just, you know, one personal example. I, you know, having read David Chilton, uh, for instance, and, and others, um, I was primed to play down the Shemitah Jubilee aspects of the text, you know, the debt release, um, and, and resting of the land. And Jesus just dragged me kicking and screaming back to that, you know, from Luke 4 on. Um, that, um, we've tended to do, oh, it's just rules for Israel and it's not important and it's a temporary thing and it's not really economic. It's really ceremonial. Um, and that was, you know, that's what I had imbibed. And I don't think that's true at all. I think Jesus is clearly invoking Shemitah and Jubilee laws against the religious leaders and the religious elites. Um, and his, his instruction not being followed ended up destroying Jerusalem. Um, so, my inner David Chilton would want to t would want to tune down the Shemitah uh, material, uh, the, um, the debt release material and Jubilee material. But if I'm going to follow the text wherever it leads, it led me to a reassertion. Now, what you do with that in modern America, that's a different question, right? But, um, you know, um, I, I'm, I'm going to I'm going to side with Moses over Mises on this, that there's some there's something um, about debt which is destructive and grinds the poor down. And there probably um, should be something that puts limits on it or time limits or whatever that um, I'm not sure that we need to treat debt as an eternal and absolute property right obligation, hmm. uh, given biblical example to the contrary. Um, so well, now so we can get into that. I don't think it has to be redistributionary. I don't think the Shemitah was redistributionary. You knew in advance how long the debt would last, right? So you could account for that. Uh, yeah. But neither was it you know, the sovereign market can do whatever it wants. Right. Yeah. Um, perhaps we can have you back and uh, you can address that in more depth. I'd, I'd like to hear more about that. Uh, I did want to go back to something that you mentioned in the first episode where we were talking to you, uh, where you... Um, made the controversial claim that Jesus was crucified for economic reasons. Um, 
And uh, as we're as we're closing out this uh, this second part of our uh, our uh, discussion, can you fill that out for us? What uh, what do you have in mind? Well, we know from the text um, directly that on the part of the religious leaders, he was crucified for partly economic reasons because he told the parable of the ungrateful husbandman. And the gospel says, uh, Luke's gospel says that they discerned that he was speaking about them. They feared the crowd and they decided to set hands on him to destroy him. So the gospels tell us that that was the last straw. Um, so, you know, the way I would put it is, you know, up until then, Jesus had been messing with their theology and they got mad, but then he messed with their money and they got murderous. Hmm. Um, so, um, the gospels tell us that that was their, that, 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 um, that, that that was the trigger. Um, they don't say it was money, but it's a f- clearly financial parable. Um, so we we kind of know that, and and there is an arc in the parables from less obscure to more obscure. Excuse me, from more obscure to less obscure, right? So the early parables are designed to not be understood, but then it's like you know when he gets to Jerusalem, now it's time for the two by four parables right across the forehead. You're gonna you're gonna have no doubt who I'm talking about. Um, and you know, there's lots of reasons why that might be. And I think one reason is Jesus didn't want to die in 30 AD. He wanted to die in 33, didn't want to, but what it intended to. So he didn't want to unmask his apocalyptic message about how critical he was being about the economic extractive nature and oppressive nature of the ruling class. Um, so I think you have that going on with the religious leaders, but there's the mystery of Pilate. And anti-Christian apologists frequently use Pilate as a as a counter to the Gospels. That Pilate wouldn't have done this. Pilate would not have given in to the crowd. And they quote Josephus and Philo about what a hard neck, um, you know, a, a hard case Pilate was. Pilate was a tough guy. He was sent by his sponsor Sejanus, who was under Tiberius Caesar, to crack heads. You know, uh, to, um, to, uh, crack the whip, um, down there in this rest of province of Judea. So, um, you know, that's what he was there for. He was the, t- he was bad cop, not good cop. So, um, I've seen this from anti-Christian Jewish apologists frequently. So why in the world would he give in? This, this account must be wrong. Pilate would never have given in to the mob to crucify Jesus. So why is he so uncharacteristic? Well, if you believe in a 33 AD crucifixion, the traditional date, if you don't, then yet some of this switches around in terms of the timeline. Um, you note that, and, and you study Roman economic history, you note that Rome was in the midst of a financial collapse, the worst in their history up until that point. Not, a, not totally unlike the global collapse of 2008, 2009, a debt, a debt collapse. Um, and it was triggered by the execution of Sejanus, who was an equestrian and of class like Pilate, um, and was Pilate's essentially sponsor. He was Pilate's backing. They were tied in with the financial class, right? They were tied in with the bankers. So what happens is Tiberius finds out Sejanus is trying to kill him, cuts Sejanus's head off, and starts cracking the whip on the banking community. Starts up um, in, imposing regulations, new regulations on the banking financial sector. That sets off a financial collapse, which, by the way, begins in in Palestine, in Tyre, where the temple shekel is minted. 
The first collapse of the banking house is there. Spreads out throughout the empire. So, so Pilate's sponsor now has his head separated from his body. Um, and Pilate's and, and Sejanus's network are in a state of political persecution and economic crisis. All their bank, the great banking houses are collapsing. Pilate doesn't have any cover. So the tough guy Pilate has, doesn't have help from his financial friends because they're, they're not, they're, they're wealthy financial friends because they're not wealthy anymore and they're not politically favored, which explains why even though he is resistant to the idea of crucifying Jesus, I don't think necessarily out of a sense of justice. He doesn't like giving into the mob. They invoke a third threat against him. If you let this man go, you are no Amica Caesarai. You are no friend of Caesar. They're threatening him with the charge of Mahestus, treason, exactly what his sponsor Sejanus had been executed on the basis of. And he does, and he doesn't have political cover and he doesn't have financial cover. His, his political faction is on the outs. Um, and so he loses his courage or his cruelty or whatever you want to call it and gives into the mob because he doesn't want to end up with his, his head separated from his body. Um, and so this uncharacteristic behavior of Pilate makes perfect sense given the financial, the financial and political context. Um, that he didn't, he also, he did not want to be accused of Mahestus. I mean, the crowds in Palestine had done that before. They actually wrote to Caesar. And Sejanus, as I recall, wrote and said, ignore them! Crack the whip harder. What's different now? What's different now is everyone's terrified. Um, everyone, the, the equestrian financial class is terrified because their house of cards is collapsing. And the allies of Sejanus are terrified because Sejanus had been killed for treason. Had been executed for treason. So none. Of, so when I if I say that to some people, they say, "No, Jesus died for our sins." Yes, he died for our sins, but he died on a cross. The nail went in. The nail followed the laws of physics. The wood followed the laws of physics. <laughs> um, astrophysics were overruled apparently when the sun went dark. Um, but um, you know these material causations do not do not substitute for theological intent. In fact, they help us bring it to us. Right, because what I saw in 2008 and 2009 is that Christians were at least as terrified as everybody else during that financial collapse. So the crucifixion narrative um, is to us a little reminder about how how much money is idolatry is a matter of idolatry for us, and how leaders get frightened when their money's cut off. Um, so I would argue that humankind killed Jesus for lots of reasons. Rene Girard has talked about the mimetic rivalry and the scapegoat mechanism. There's obviously, you know, a lot going on theologically with the atonement and Jesus is the hilasterion, but you already know all that stuff. But we also killed him partly, um, uh, out of financial anxiety because of our idolatry of wealth. And you, uh, from another, uh, yet another angle, um, the, uh, Jesus action in the temple his attack on the money changers in the temple would be another another dimension of that. Yes, which is probably why, if you read the four gospel accounts, three of them single out the um, the dove merchants. Why? Why? Why are the dove merchants different than the money changers and the other animal merchants? And I bet you know the answer. Because the dove sacrifice was the sacrifice for the poor. So in Matthew and Mark's gospel, he singles out the, the dove merchants. 
In Luke's gospel, he doesn't mention them. I'll swing back to that in a second. And in John's gospel, he only addresses the dove merchants. To those who are selling doves, he says, take these things out of here. You shall not make my... Um, so what? It, what is it with these doves? If we think that there's not an economic dimension here, then why is it that Jesus singles out that particular financial function in the temple that is most oppressive to the poor? Um, doesn't make any sense. So why does Luke leave it out? Because the Gentile audience would not have known about the Torah. It would have been an irrelevant detail to them. Well, he would have mentioned it, but Luke's already getting pretty long, right? So, uh, so you can see Luke saying, you know, basically saying, all right, you know, these Greeks, these Romans, they're not going to know that the dove is for the, is for the poor, but Matthew and Mark will. And John brings particular attention to it. And I would suggest that maybe it's because John was particularly close to Mary. And Mary herself, Jesus' mother, was ripped off by that system. Um, John, Mary adopted John as son at the cross. According to, I think, Eusebius, they went to Ephesus together. So John's gospel would, would have more of a Mary point of view. Um, so I'm just suggesting all of this is best interpretation for now. Yes. Um, so I'm suggesting that there's a strong social justice vibe. These people were ripping off everybody, but the poor can least afford to be ripped off. So that's why we focus on the on the does. And maybe Jesus was particularly angry at them, um, not just out of social justice and prophetic indignation, but as a son whose mother had wealth extracted from her, who had to pay double to the money changers in order to get those doves, that dove that she sacrificed. So the the assault on the the temple is an assault on the. Uh, it's a place of worship, but it's also, as, as we've discussed in both of these episodes, the temple is the financial and economic hub, of, certainly of Jerusalem, of Judea, and in some sense of the of the land as a whole. So, by by particularly, I mean there's a there's a particular particularly pointed symbolic dimension to Jesus uh, going after the dove dove merchants because uh, he's he's protesting the economic abuses that take place in the temple that are perpetrated outside the temple. Uh, and that's especially evident in the, uh, the way, you know, the, the, the uh, abuse of the poor by, the, by, by dove merchants. Is that the kind of picture you're painting? That's exactly the picture I'm painting, that, that we need to explain why he's, you know, what is the best explanation for why he singles out the dove merchants. If, you, if you're a null hypothesis person, if you're like, it's all religious, there's nothing economic going on here. Then I ask you to explain why the, the 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 vendors who were singled out were the vendors who were most exploitative economically. Um, now, lots of other things are going on. I mean, as a theopolitan, I would look and say he's going after the dove merchants. Well, you know, is the temple grieving the Holy Spirit, who's a dove mm-hmm. who lights on Jesus? He says, "Behold, your house has been left unto you desolate." Right, the Spirit departing. At the bid in Josephus about saying, "Let us depart." So I, there's a lot going on. I'm not saying economics is the only thing going on here. And I'm not even saying the economics is a different thing. You know, I talked to a friend who's right. sort of an academic theologian about this, and he said, well, you know, this is about work salvation, not about economics. And I said, when in history have we had a doctrine of work salvation that did not immediately get monetized? <laughs> the economic exploitation and the false theology go together. They're in a symbiotic relationship with one another. If I say you have to come through me to get to to God, I or the next guy in this position are going to figure out a way to get your credit card number. Um, and um, they had. And it had gotten to the point where I think it was mostly a den of robbers. 
which is probably why Jesus called them a den of robbers. Not because he just wanted to say something angry, but because they were indeed robbers. They were thieving. They were using a monopoly, uh, monopoly powers, monopoly state powers, and religious authority to rob people. So Jesus, I'm going to take Jesus at his word. He was denouncing, he was denouncing theft. Jerry, it's been a delight to be uh, to be connected with you. As always, uh, very illuminating, provocative material. Thanks for coming to the podcast. We hope to have you back again soon. My pleasure. Can, can I can I urge them to give to Theopolis? Uh, you can do whatever you like. Well, I'm going to. We do, um, and we'll continue to. Um, and it's because of this message, because Theopolis understands that something happens with the destruction of the temple monopoly. And the spirit is sent out into the world, and it's a liberating message. Um, so that this, uh, everything I've seen from Theopolis is is the opposite of what the temple elite was doing. Um, and I think that biblical literacy, biblical saturation, as Jim Jordan puts it, uh, is the antidote to that. So well worth support. I mean, we support it because we think it's. Um, it's a mustard seed that will grow and fill the whole earth. Not Theopolis per se, but the biblical message, which Theopolis seems to have a you know, better handle on than anyone else we can find. Well, thanks very much. Uh, that's very encouraging. And uh, once again, thanks for coming and uh, talking to us. And uh, we'll keep in touch. Hope to have you back again. God bless. God bless you. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Mm-hmm.